Yeah, it's been a good uh, good morning so far. So I hope our hearts are prepared for it. Good, good hymn singing and uh, good time of uh, coming before God's throne already. I open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter six. We will be continuing our look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and today I'll be looking at three verses from Matthew chapter six. read the light of the body is the eye if therefore thine eye be single thy whole body shall be full of light but if thine eye be evil thy whole body shall be full of darkness if therefore the light that is in thee it be darkness how great is that darkness no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for your word. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this place. We thank you for this fellowship that we have in you and for the salvation that we have in common. And Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that is working on our hearts even now. Father, that our will will be, will be bent to yours. That our hearts and our ears would be open to your truth is my prayer this morning. That I would speak the words of God, that I would speak the truth in love, that I would do it without any reservation is also my prayer. I pray this morning that we would leave this place energised to serve you more fully, bolder to share the truth and wiser to make better decisions. Thank you once again for this time. I ask that I be hidden behind your cross and that only Jesus would be seen this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever spent time appreciating the idioms of our language? Idioms. Do you know what an idiom is? Some people are saying yes. Yeah. Most people are saying yes. Might know what it is. But there are common phrases that we use in everyday language that we, but we don't pay any attention to. But if you actually took them literally, they would mean they don't even make sense. They actually mean something very different to what they actually say. And if you took that idiom, even in our English language, and you said that idiom in America, where they also speak English, or you said the same idiom in uh, in in England, where they also speak English. They wouldn't understand what you were talking about. And if I said to you, get on your bike, would I be physically saying for you to get on your bike? No. If I said that all Collingwood supporters are one-eyed, would you actually think that maybe sometime during their, li- during their lives they all managed by some freak accident to lose an eye? No, you wouldn't. You'd know, you'd, you'd know what that term meant. Now, if I said to you that one toothed, you'd probably take it a bit more literally. <laughs> I'd throw that one in. They won anyway, so they're all right. Now, what about if I said to you the term a piece of cake? This job is a piece of cake. How would you, how would you describe that, that job? You wouldn't say it was delicious or... No, you'd say that job was easy to do. If I said to you, it's a drop in the bucket, you'd know that that thing was only a small part of something a whole lot bigger. Or a bird in the hand or... I can go on and on all day with idioms. All day. We just don't pay attention half the time to the things that we say because we've said them so often, we all know what they mean. But if you took them all literally, it would not make one... Wouldn't make any sense what you were saying. If I said to you that I, I spoke to a bean counter yesterday, would you know who that was? My accountant. What if I said to you that a criminal got a slap on the wrist? Would he literally have gone to the judge and the judge said, Bad boy? No. Or if I added fuel to the fire, I can go all day 
with idioms that we have in, in our country that are sometimes shared with other, with other countries, but a lot of them are just really particular to here. Some of them even locally. Okay? Believe it or not, the Bible has many idioms. Idioms. So things that are the same. So they're said or phrased in a particular way that means something, that there's a meaning behind it. And if you took it literally, you'd probably be going in a different direction, the wrong direction. And these two idioms that we're going to be looking at or focusing on mostly today are what's called the evil eye. The evil eye and a single eye. Okay, so you look at the you look at the passage there, and it says a single eye. If thine eye be evil, or thine eye be single, well, single eye does not mean to have one eye. And an evil eye, what does that mean? An evil eye. The King James is full of idioms, and the King James. What makes the, the King James one of the most influential? Uh, Books in our history, in the development of the English language, is that it the reason it ranks up there with Shakespeare and the Oxford Dictionary is that so many of the idioms that we find in the King James, even after 400 years, we're still using today. The idioms that were introduced in that Bible, we still use today without even thinking of them. The linguistic impact of the King James Bible is almost without equal. Anyway, with the way it's developed and structured our language. Let me give you a few examples of that. If I said to you that what's happening that what's happening in a particular area is a sign of the times. You heard that phrase before, a sign of the times? Well, you might you should have. Because Matthew 16.3 says, And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, can you, uh, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the sign of the times? So what's happened is we've taken that particular phrase and we've, we've actually used it in our common day language. It's a sign of the times. You know, the, we might be talking about the crime rate or the way kids are or the way, you know, all these different things that we see as signals in our, in our, um, our everyday life to say sign of the times has been picked up from the King James. Well, how about if I say that we see eye to eye? You know what that means. But I don't literally actually go and look at one eye and, and, and look at Alan's eye and we, we line ourselves up over there. It means that we agree on something, but even that has been picked up from the King James Bible. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 8, it says, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye, when the Lord shall bring again Zion. They've picked up that phrase, and now we use it every day. Oh, they see eye to eye on things. Well, how about to put words in someone else's mouth? Don't put words in my mouth. I'll put them in yours, but don't put them in mine. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 3, it says, And come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. He put the words in her mouth. So there are plenty of idioms in the Bible. I could, I could, once again, I could spend probably most of the day talking to you about these idioms that we just take for granted. And we think they're literal, but they're actually not. They're phrases that have been put together, we've adopted, that mean certain things. You understand what they mean only in the context that we've actually heard them so many times. Now, just as there are English idioms that we've picked up, which have been direct translations from the, from the Hebrew and the Greek, there are a number of idioms, though, which have become, in a sense, lost in translation. Like the term evil eye. When was the last time you used evil eye? We don't tend to use that term very much in our culture. Or single eye. Some of them have actually either lost their meaning over time or it's been distorted over time. So they mean something different today than what they meant originally. So the evil eye and a single eye are two of these types of idioms. Now, I mean, what is an evil eye? If you try to, to look at this thing logically... Is it literally a, a, a physical eye that we can call evil 
when you compare it to the rest of the parts of your body? No. Since we have two eyes, which one would be evil? Would it be the left or the right? So when Jesus says, and if thy right eye offend thee, you've read this phrase, haven't you? You've read this passage. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now let me ask you a question. If thy right eye offend thee, how would I know which of my eyes were offending me since I used both of my eyes at the same time? How would, how would I know it was my right eye that was causing me to sin or do something else and not my left? And you wouldn't want to get it wrong. Because if you went to the trouble of plucking your eye out thinking that it was going to stop you from sinning, if you got it wrong and went for the left or went for the other one, you'd be back in the same place, wouldn't you? You'd been worse off. At least the other eye was looking okay. What is he asking us to do? What is this passage talking about? Well, we'll see the answer to that a little bit later on. So let's go back to our main passage. And the passage says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, Basically, the, the basic message here is that the eye is a source of light for the body. So light enters the eye and enters the body, which is, a, I think, a fair enough analogy. And if your eye is single, and we've got to work out what that word single is, it must be equated to something good, because it says your life or your body will be filled with light. But if your eye is evil, which is obviously bad, you shall be filled with darkness. So here the Lord is contrasting the two types of eye. He's contrasting an evil eye with a single eye. One's going to give you light. One's going to cause you to live in darkness. So the, the, the message was very clear with this. He wants us to understand the difference between those two and what to avoid and what to embrace. So this is the purpose of this message today, that we understand by the end of it what an evil eye is, what a single eye is, and what the Lord would have us to do with those eyes. And to determine whether what type of eyes we actually have. Now, the evil eye, we'll start with the evil eye. The evil eye is mentioned in a number of places in the Bible, even by the Lord Himself. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Look at verse 20. Now Jesus says very clearly, and he said, verse 20, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. All right, so we know one thing now. The evil lie comes from within. The evil lie comes from within. Bang on a sec, the light, it, it brings the light in from the outside, doesn't it? So the type of eye is the type of eye is determined by what's inside, first of all. But once again, it's not defined for us there. So what's an evil eye? Jesus brings it up as part of a longer list. Of things that are bad. Now, having come from an Italian background, there is, we have in our culture something that's called an evil eye. I dare say the Greeks have the same, and I think the Lebanese. The Lebanese have a have a yeah, they have the evil eye as well, all right. And there's probably different other nationalities that have it. Although the Australian culture doesn't really talk about the evil eye. Now, in the, in the Italian culture, and it's probably similar to the other ones, an evil lie is synonymous with someone placing a curse on you. Okay? So someone, let's say you have a baby and, and you know, you're willing it around in the pram and someone comes and says, what a cute baby. But deep down, they don't really love the baby or love you. 
And what they're doing is, in the back of their mind, they're saying, I wish you didn't have this baby. Or, I wish I had that baby. Or, I should have had that baby. So the Italians think that when someone's giving you a compliment, they're always suspicious that they're actually trying to put a curse on you at the same time. So the Italians have this, um, had this whole system going, all right? Where if someone gives you a compliment and they say, oh, look, you look wonderful today, all right? Or, you know, I love the new house you have. Or I like the new car you've got. Or you've got such wonderful children. They're always suspicious that a curse has been put on them. So, ever seen this, this symbol? All right, okay. That symbol is the horned whatever it is. It comes from some occultic thing, right? But they, they, they do that to ward off the, the curse. Now that's a bit like, you know at the front of churches in Europe? Stationed around the churches are things called gargoyles, right? And you think, gargoyles, why would you put such ugly creatures around the church. Now, if a lot of the churches that are built in the Middle Ages have these gargoyles around them. Well, the reason they have gargoyles around them is to stop the demons from getting in, you see. The evil spirits. So the gargoyles are so ugly. They're so, they're so menacing that, that anything evil is going to be... They're going to look at those and they're going to be too scared to, to, to come in. It's the same thing the Italians have got. The same sort of mentality with this thing over here. Now, I don't know if that means the devil... Because in some places it actually does, the horned one, okay? But they, they, they do this signal to stop a curse coming in. So it's a bit like trying to fight fire with fire. I remember growing up, there was a particular ritual that took place. There was a test, you see, where someone had put a curse on you and they'd get a plate of water. My great-grandmother did this to me a few times when I was, when I was very young. If you got sick, right, if you had a bad flu and you weren't getting better, they would perform this thing on you to see whether, the, whether you had been cursed or not. And the, 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 thing, the thing was simply this. They'd get a plate of water, they'd, put, they'd hold it over your head, they'd put three drops of water in there, and then they'd see what happened with that, with that oil. So three drops of oil in there. Sorry, not water. And then to watch the oil and the way it floated around, and if it came together, it meant something. If it split apart, it meant something else. If it formed a, a particular shape, it meant something else. So they would, they would do this thing, and they'd, they'd roll this thing around on your head. And then if, if, if it came together in a particular way, they'd say, someone's put a curse on you. So then they went ahead, and they'd put that dish down, and they'd have to pray the Our Father over you, or a special type of prayer to say that they had to break that curse. So that was evil eye. The evil eye with Italians is basically referring to someone putting a curse on you, looking at you, envying what you have and hating you as a result. And as a result of that, because they envy you or what you've got, they're putting a curse on you. Needless to say, that definition is not what Jesus was talking about. That whole thing is, is pagan and, uh, and, and got everything else mixed up in it. It's totally misguided. In its, uh, in its thinking. But is it related to what Jesus is talking about today? That might not have been it, but is there some element in there that might, that might be right? So what is an evil eye and a single eye? Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 23. Because what I want to do now is to look to the Word of God to help us define these particular terms. Once the Word of God has defined them for us, then we'll know that we're on the right track. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4. Now it says there, Labour not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. Neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. 
The morsel which thou hast eaten shall thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. What does that mean? Interesting passage, isn't it? Well, if you look at verse 4 and 5, it sounds very much like the, 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 the part in the, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, don't build up yourselves treasures upon the earth. Build them in heaven. Because it says there, don't labour to be rich. Don't set your heart or your eyes upon things which are not. In other words, put your attention and focus your efforts and put your trust in things that can be here one day and the next they can fly away. All right, so it started with that. Verse 6 says, then says though, gives us some advice. Don't eat with him that have an evil eye. Don't eat with someone that has an evil eye. All right, well, how would, what is that? What, what, what does that mean? Why? Because even though you may be partaking of his food, even though he may say, here, have some bread, have some, something else. It says, don't even eat with him because it says his heart's not really with you. Even though he's offering you those things and looks as if he wants your benefit, he doesn't want your benefit at all. In fact, he hates the fact that you're eating his food. The message here, or in this particular passage, is that the evil eye refers in this passage to someone who is disingenuous. They're not real. They're in, in your face, they're showing you that they care for you and they like you, but deep down, they actually hate you. They don't want you eating their food. They don't want you around. Because you know what you're doing? You're actually stopping them from getting richer. This person makes out that he likes to share, but deep down, he's a greedy person who doesn't want to share. Look at Proverbs 28. Turn, turn a few chapters ahead. We'll look at something even a bit more direct. Proverbs 28, verse 22. It says there, He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. Now that is almost a direct definition. He that hasteth to be rich has or hath an evil eye. In other words, if your focus is on getting rich and earning money and that's, and that's your main aim, then by definition here, you have what the Bible says is evil eye. A greedy person has an evil eye. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. Let's see something in the New Testament. Let's see if it repeats this sort of idea that greed and a focus on getting wealthy at the expense of others or neglecting others is the same thing. Now, before I, I won't bother to read the whole passage. But Jesus gives a parable about a landowner who hires a certain amount of workers at the beginning of the day and he says, are you guys happy to work for this amount of money? And they go, yeah, we'll work for that amount of money. So in the beginning of the day, he sets them off to work and they start working and then he realises that he needs more workers. So he goes out again and gets more workers and he offers them the same amount. Would you guys be happy to, to, to work for this amount of money? And they say, yep, no worries at all. And they come in and the, guy, the original guys who were happy to work with that money, realised later on that the guys who started later, guess what? Got the same as them. Now, do you think they were happy? Well, the, the Bible here says they weren't. They compared what they were getting, the amount of hours they put in there, and, to the, and they compared it to the guys who came later, who worked less hours but got the same amount of money. So they complained. They went to the landowner and they complained. And Jesus' response to that is found in verse 15. It says, Is it not lawful, Matthew 20, verse 15, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? And look what he says. Is thine eye evil because I am good? Now think about that passage for a moment. Think about the men that complain where Jesus says that their eye was evil. What were they doing? They were being greedy. Because at the, at, at the beginning, they agreed to work for a certain sum. They were more than happy with it. 
But then when they found out that someone had more than them or got it more easily than them, they became jealous and envious. And their greed took over. Now Jesus is saying that these people had what, what the scripture says over here was an evil eye. So what is an evil eye? Well, evil eye has a lot to do with being greedy. Has a lot to do with being envious, covetous. And then not caring about the other person more than yourself. So that you're, in, your, in your haste, in your desire to build up your own wealth, you do it at the expense of other people. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 9. Turn back with me there. We'll look at, we'll look at um, one more. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 9. Deuteronomy 15 verse 9 refers to the seventh year for the Israelites. Now what was the seventh year? Does anyone know what the seventh year was? Sorry, Alan? It was the Sabbath year. What about if you had a debt? was wiped off, right? They had a great system over there. If you had a debt, every seventh year, your debt would be clean. The slate would become clean. You'd be back to, uh, back to an even, an even uh, keel. Not bad, huh? But it says here, look at, verse nine, look at verse 9. It says, Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy brother, and thou givest him naught, and he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it is be sin unto thee. What's this saying over here? And that's the, the term evil eyes come up again. In what context is it coming up? It's coming up in exactly the same context. This person who was meant to make sure that the person that was working for him as a, as a servant... He probably had a debt. You see over there, if you had a debt, you'd become a servant or, a, in inverted commas, a slave of the person you had the debt to. But every seven years, they had to release you and with enough money to make sure that you could actually live on your own. So the scriptures say, well, don't think to yourself that the seven years coming up and then you want to take advantage of this person. So you maybe put them, try to put them under more debt or you try some shifty manoeuvre that keeps them locked in. And then it says, if you do that, your, your eye is evil against your poor brother. So you're taking advantage of someone who's poorer. Once again here, the eye is connected with greediness and with someone who does not care about others as much as they care about their own pocket, about their own advancement. Okay? So is that clear enough as a definition for the evil eye? It's funny because the evil eye, as you read a number of different commentaries, they all come up with different, funny, all come up with different ideas about what an evil eye is. Some uh, Wesley said that you know an evil eye was basically someone who sought to do always good things for God, who, who kept their focus on God. And while that, while that's okay, is a very general context. It doesn't actually answer. It doesn't actually give us the, the precise answer for what that is. You know, if you were a new ager, that that uh, that single eye which we'll look at in a minute, would refer to your third eye because they believe that you have some sort of a spiritual eye if you're a new ager. And if you're a doctor, you might think that it was actually a physical ailment that they were talking about to have a single eye. But it's not that according to scripture. Now let's look at the context of the passage from which we took these verses from. Now look at this. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. And we'll read... The section before it, and we'll read the section after it to see whether there's a particular pattern that flows. You see, because God doesn't, or the Lord didn't have conversations just to have conversations and threw in as many different things as he could. There was always a very clear argument that the Lord gave. And sometimes we lose that because we don't understand what he's talking about. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, and it says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. 
where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Look where those verses are sandwiched between. The verses concerning an evil eye and a single eye are sandwiched between laying up treasures on the earth and the advice that you should be laying them up in heaven instead and the end of it, which is you can't serve two masters. So what does the evil eye and a single eye mean? Well, basically they have to do with greed and wanting to build up your treasures on earth. Your eyes are focused on advancing yourself. The definition of an evil eye is someone whose heart is darkened and seeks after the world's wealth. Having an evil eye is having a greedy eye. And if others have the wealth, it refers to an envious eye. In other words, wanting what you don't have and someone else has. It is a lustful desire of the eye, which controls a person thoroughly. And in this case, the verse refers specifically to money and what you do with it. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 9 says, He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. If you are generous, then you are not greedy. All right. We looked at what an evil eye is. So an evil eye refers to the greediness, enviness, or envy and, um, and covetousness. Let's look at a single eye. This term is also used in a number of places in the Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Turn with me there. We'll read two verses, and then we'll have a bit of a look at and a discussion about what they might mean. Acts chapter 2, verse 46, and it says, And they continue, this is the early church, the disciples that got together in the early church, says they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did they eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Singleness. Well, did that mean they all had one heart? Well, it might. They all had one heart. Maybe, maybe not. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. It says there, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Well, does it mean if you look, if you compared that, that definition to the previous verse, it can't mean that everyone's hearts were knitted together because this is speaking about an individual person. So what is singleness? Well, we do know it's something positive and good. And we do know that it's contrasted with an evil, an evil line. So let's go to a definition of the... Of the um, the dictionary. Well, basically, singleness in the dictionary means without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. That is, to be sincere without being self-seeking or objectively generous. So you're not seeking your own. You're not being hypocritical because you want, you, you're, you're trying to build yourself up at the expense of others. So in a sense, it refers to <clears throat> simplicity, sincerity. Generosity. When we say when we say the singleness of his motives could not be questioned, what we're saying is that he's not duplicitous. 
He's not hypocritical. When he does things, he's actually doing them for the right reason. And there's no, there's no agenda or motive behind. This agrees well with the previous definitions of the evil eye. Because a person who offers you food, but insincerely because of his, of his greed, has the evil eye, and this is the exact opposite of that. And now we see that this verse agrees with the whole thrust of chapter 6 in Matthew. The whole thrust of chapter 6 was, if you give alms to poor people, if you give money to the poor, don't do it in front of everyone else to show. If you pray, don't pray in front of everyone as if you're trying to win their respect. It reinforces the criticism of the Pharisees. It puts that all into context now. Because the Pharisees did things to build up themselves. And the Bible says that they were not just hypocrites, but they were greedy. Greedy for money. Greedy for the praise of men. It's the idea of having a double heart. In front of you, they present themselves as one type of person, but they have a secret agenda in the back to build up their reputation and their wealth and their prosperity. And they're going to use you to do it. So the idea of singleness of I means simple sincerity, freedom from an envy of money. It's the opposite of having what the Bible says, a double heart. A person with a single eye is one of integrity, who does not have a secret agenda of self-advancement. Along with sincerity of spirit, he also has integrity towards money that keeps him from covetousness and greed. A person with a single eye sees the needs of others and wants to help them. In contrast, one with a bad eye or an evil eye is blind to the needs of other people, is greedy and only focused on their own benefit. So when Jesus says, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, not that thy whole body should be cast in hell. What is he asking us to do? He isn't asking us to pluck an eye out. He isn't expecting that if you pluck that eye out that you'll stop sinning either. These verses aren't telling us to cut off parts of our body because that actually would contradict Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 1 where you weren't allowed to cut yourself at all. Instead, we are to run away from an evil eye which is the desire, the lust, the greed of this world. And what about the Italian idea of the eye? Well, apart from the obvious false ways of protecting yourself, which are occultic in nature, it means essentially the same thing. To be disingenuous, to offer a compliment while secretly hating or envying what the other person has. Essentially, it was a hypocritical attitude. Now, I hope those, those two expressions now are clear in your mind. So when someone says to you, what is a biblical term for an evil eye? You should know it. And if someone says to you, what's, the, what's a single eye mean? You should know it. And those two things actually are an, the antithesis of the other. They're the exact opposite of the other. So what's our challenge? Well, it is admonishing us to have good conduct. More specifically, it's telling us to guard against having an evil eye of greed and lust in our lives, where our focus is on accumulating things in this world, where we forget about other people and their needs. The thought is here is that your eye seeks after things that gratify, gratify the flesh, with the wealth of this world at the expense of others, then you and I can walk in darkness. Our desire should be that we benefit, that our lives should be a benefit to those around us. I've said this probably numerous times and I've, I'll repeat it again. The Christians that I find that are the most in, in need or in want in terms of their walk with the Lord, the ones who continually have problems are the ones who continually focus on themselves. And I know that because I came out of a church that actually um, promoted that. 
that you should be focusing on yourself all the time. But I'll tell you something. If you focus on yourself all the time, what are you going to find there? Not much. But scripture actually says that our our focus should be on the Lord, serving him and seeking after him and, and his glory, not ourselves. It's not about building up our reputations in this world to show how great we are in our church and outside of our church. It's not about building up wealth and building up a, a fantastic portfolio out there and so to make sure that I'm actually you know, wealthy. It's not all about that. Because if I focus on those things, I've missed the whole point of this walk that we have with God. And it's, that it's not the focus is not on me, but on him. Our desire should be to be a benefit to people around us. And if we focus on, on the Lord, that's why the Bible says love the two great commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And then what? And to love your neighbour. And those two are an expression of, of, of a heart that is not evil but single, that seeks to give rather than to receive. It realises that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It realises that building up a treasure in heaven is more important than building my treasure on this earth. If you're focused on yourself and not on others, and the scripture teaches us that you are blind, absolutely blind, and that you need to have your eyes opened by Jesus Christ in order to see the world for what it actually is. Which brings us to the next verse. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, God and money. You can't serve both. Just as there are two types of eye, the evil eye and the single eye, there are two we can serve. We can serve God, or we can serve money, or the lust for money. And power and influence. These two masters are incompatible with each other. So much so that if you think you can serve both and you can chase after both at the same time. Ever heard the expression chasing after plenty of rabbits? You don't get any of them, right? Chasing after both of those are in two different directions. So you can't. It's impossible to have both. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 because Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 to seven tells us about what true biblical service is. And you'll notice some familiar phrases in here. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 says, servants, employees. I'll change it to employees, okay? Because that's what you understand. Employees, be obedient to them that are your Bosses, masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. Look what it says. In singleness of your heart. In singleness of my heart. Why? As unto Christ. As unto Christ. Look at verse 6 says. Not with eye service as men pleases, which what the Pharisees were doing. But as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Do you remember that phrase in verse verse five? It's from today. In singleness, that hypocrisy, sincere, seeking the better of the other rather than yourself. Well, the Bible teaches us that we should be obedient to those who employ us. We should do it with singleness of heart for Jesus. That should be our lives. Regardless of whether we're working for a good boss, a bad boss, or an indifferent boss, it's always the same. Do you think that all the bosses in those days were good? I don't see any caveats here that says, uh, uh, if your boss is a good boss, then you can work for him the right way. Then you can obey him. No. In fact, those days the bosses would have been a whole lot worse. So while we obey one boss, the earthly boss, the Bible says we can, we're actually obeying another boss, 
another master who we call master. So the goal is not to do things so that men will praise us, but that God himself will be pleased with us. That's the goal of our lives, to please him in everything we do. And our attitude toward money is a big part of that. See, Jesus spoke about money many, many times. Many times. Oftentimes we actually, we actually miss the amount of times he spoke about money and money being an indicator of where your heart's actually at. Remember the, 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 the widow with the might? So some men gave at the temple, they gave money out of, out of their wealth, and the mite gave everything she had. So the widow gave everything she had with that little mite. And the, the, the discussion was very clear. In this entire passage, Jesus seems to be equating how we use our money with our basic attitude on life. It says that our generosity is a true measure, in a sense, of us as Christians, or one of the measures of us as Christians. The bottom line of this passage, to use an accounting term, is if money rules us, God doesn't. If money rules me, God can't be ruling me. Our challenge is the culture that we live in, the sign of the times the things that we see, because our culture is almost purely materialistic. It tells us that money will make us happy. It tells us the pursuit of money, the pursuit of a career, the pursuit of influence, the reputation you have amongst other people are the things that really make a person happy. But they don't. We know that. And we know that because we see people who have money, and extraordinary amounts of it, who aren't happy. Are we people of sincerity and integrity? Do we use our money, where possible, to help others and find ways to meet their needs? And it's not just money, don't get me wrong. It's time. It's effort. Because we are rich in terms of money. We compare our culture to somewhere like where Anna Beth is, um, is ministering at the moment who live on $2 a week. We are money rich. Our problem is often we are time poor. So where there's no need to give money, we can offer our time, our efforts and those sorts of things. Some people don't necessarily need more money. As in love, attention, support, prayer, a kind word. That's what we need more in our culture. In our hearts, is our own comfort more important than these things? Is our own comfort more important? Jesus is saying that we can't be both greedy and self-centred and followers of him. We need to choose who we will serve, God or money. Let me take you back to an example of the early church. In the book of Acts, the scriptures tell us that they were preoccupied with supporting widows and orphans. In fact, it's mentioned a number of times in the Bible, in the New Testament, that widows and orphans needed to be helped with money. And funnily enough, this is the idea where deacons came from. You see, there was such a need in the early church to support widows and orphans. The husbands had obviously killed themselves in, in one place or another, whether it was in war or whether it was in other places, that they were leaving a lot of widows and orphans behind. There was such a need in the early church that the disciples were spending too much time actually s s devoting themselves to that thing. They were spending so much time doing that that they were actually being taken away from preaching the word and, the, and prayer, the things they needed to do as the spiritual leaders in their church. So today we have deacons. Because a decision was made to raise up a group of men who would be focused on those things, servants of the church. But what was their job? What was a, what was a deacon's job? Well, 
It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Okay? What were the disciples doing? Serving tables. Now let me ask you a question. Was the early church running a big soup kitchen? Where? The Bible says they were meeting in either temple or they were meeting from house to house. So how were the disciples actually running a soup kitchen? Were the, the disciples, do we have this like picture in our mind, the disciples actually handing out food to all the, to all the people that were coming and eating breakfast, lunch and dinner? And they were, no, that's not what the actual thing is. You see, serving tables was, was an idiom. It was an idiom. Serving tables had to do with money, not food. And I'll tell you why. Mark chapter 11, verse 15 says, And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Many people imagine the early church running one big community soup kitchen. Well, there's no evidence of that at all. And the fact that there were... Do you know how many people are in the early church in Jerusalem? Thousands and thousands. In the first day, there were how many? 3,000 came on board in the first day. How big a church is that? That's absolutely huge. So there were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands by this stage, of people that needed help and assistance. How are they doing it? We don't see them building huge cathedrals. There's no record of them having built big soup kitchens with row upon row of, of tables. They didn't do that. So how did they actually help these people? Well, I think it's fairly simple. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 34, and we'll find our answer there. Acts 4, verse 34, which is about finished. It says there, neither was there any among them that lacked. Acts 4.34. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them. And look what they did. And brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according to his need. So you get the picture? This was like the first pension. This is like the widow's pension here that was, that was first started up. They weren't going buying bags of potatoes and onions and, and celery and, and all these different things and then handing out food, cooking it and then handing it out. They were literally setting up tables and people would come in need with money and they would distribute the money that had been given to them. So the disciples were like a place where people would say, here, I've sold this block of land over here. Here's the money for it. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They went through the same thing, but actually did. they didn't actually give the full amount. They lied. So this was common. So the disciples ended up saying, what are we, going to, what are we doing here? We're running, it's like they, they were running a bank. All this money is coming into them and they're having to worry about, all right, do we give it to that lady, that lady, that lady, that lady? No. They didn't have time to do all that. They were inundated with all that. So what they chose to do was to raise up a group of men called deacons. And the reason, and, and there was an interesting thing about deacons. They had, to be of, they had to be honest and of good report. And you think about the job they had then. These guys were the, were the people that received all the money, counted it, and then distributed it to the right people. That's why they had to be of honest and good report. People in the early church were living with a single eye. A single eye. They realised the needs that were around them, and they were willing to sell their properties, houses, to give to those people who were in need. Now, things have changed today. 
People get pensions and, and, and all types of things, so no one's starving out there. But in those days, they were. There was no one to support them. They saw there was a need and they responded. Today, we're having a business meeting in this church. A business meeting to speak about the Lord's business. But in, in essence, it's about what we're doing with money. What we do with the money that's being given to the church and are we administering it properly? Are we being faithful in giving and administering? We should consider our giving to the Lord. You see, because the early church was selling houses and, and lands and everything to give. And I'm not saying you need to sell your house and your land. What I'm saying is for you to examine your heart this morning and, and see whether your heart is more focused on the world and accumulating wealth for yourself or whether you're actually giving. And the New Testament says the right place to give is the church. It says that. The right place to give is through your church, through your local church, because there are ministries that need supporting. There are missionaries out there who need that money to survive, to share the gospel with the world. There is a need for us to share the gospel within our own community, which doesn't come for free. You see, while you can do it maybe for free in other countries here, you have to pay for everything. Everything is expensive. So there's a need for that. There's a need to also build up this church in our fellowship and in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what type of eye will we have? What type of eye do we have? Do we have a single eye that's focused on the Lord? Or do we have an evil eye? Or do we think we have one of both? I'll leave that for you to decide. You know, there are, Jesus says that we have to build up our wealth in heaven. Well, let me tell you where that starts. That starts by having your debt paid. You can't build up wealth if you have an insurmountable debt. At the moment, the Australian government is trying to fix up a debt situation. They're worried about the future. Well, let me tell you something. If you, if you aren't saved this morning, you have a debt so large, you will never pay it off. Even if you spend an eternity in hell paying for that. That's the debt that a person has who's not saved. But there is a way to start building wealth in heaven rather than on earth. And it's to allow Jesus to pay the debt for you. And he did. And it's what we remembered over here. It's that he shed his own blood. He gave his own body. And he took our place on the cross to pay our debt. But let me tell you what else he did that oftentimes goes unmentioned. Is that when he paid our debt, our bank account was at zero. We had no debt to God anymore. We were... Even. But Jesus went the next step. And the Bible says that he actually filled up our account with his righteousness. He filled up our account. That's why a person who's saved remains saved and is never, ever lost. Because you can never consume the righteousness and the account that you have. Never, ever consumed. So you can live the rest of your life in victory. You can know for a, a certainty that if you die, whichever day, that you will be in heaven. Because your count is not at zero waiting to go a little bit under or a little bit above. Your account is so full that no man can ever take that account away. It can never be consumed. Now let me ask you, have you had your debt paid today? Is your account full with the righteousness of Christ? Because if you think you will fill it with your own righteousness, you are wrong. Jesus says that if you want to be his disciple, you must be ready to die to yourself and to die to this world. To have your eye single, without hypocrisy. 
I'll close with one, one passage. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified, dead unto me, and I unto the world. Christian, are you walking as someone who has been crucified to the world and the world to you? Or are we still running after things in this world? And if you're not saved this morning, or you don't know it, or are not sure, then now is a time to make sure. Don't live anymore pleasing yourself, running after things in this world, because there is no peace, there is no joy, and there is no security. Seek Christ. God bless you. Thank you.